You're listening to the First Baptist Church of Hazel Park audio podcast. We hope that this podcast is a helpful resource in your daily walk with Christ. Now, here's today's sermon. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back. Thank you all for being here tonight as we dive back into this new series in Ecclesiastes. So on that note, if you have your Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter number 1 is where we are going to be tonight. If you find it helpful, there are notes that are available on the website as well. But Ecclesiastes chapter number 1 is where we're going to start, and we will get about midway through chapter 2 tonight. In 1987, there was a song that was released as part of a new album, and the title of the song was I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. When the song came out, it was instantly popular, and the artist describes this journey that they've been on, where they have searched the highest mountains, they have run through hills, they have crawled, they have done all of these things in an attempt to find something, but yet after all of this, they still have not found what it was that they set out looking for to begin with. When that song came out, as I said, it was instantly popular, but as the decades have rolled on, it's really only grown in popularity. In the nearly 40 years since that song has come out, it has made all sorts of top record charts. It has been downloaded and played billions of times. It even made a list of what they considered the top 500 greatest songs of all time. Think about that for a second. The millions of songs that have been written in the canon of music over the centuries, they consider this song, the people who ranked these in the top 1% of all songs ever written. That is a mind-blowing statistic. So what is it about this song that seems to resonate with people? Well, for some, I'm sure that they just like the way it sounds, or maybe they're just fans of the tune, or whatever the case is. But honestly, and tragically, I think the reason why it resonates with so many people and has gained so much popularity is because that is the cry of the human heart apart from Jesus Christ. That all over the world I can search and I can strive and I can try to find meaning in this life and I can try to have purpose and I think there are so many people on this planet that can relate to this idea of spending their entire lives chasing after something and attempting to get something only at the end of it to say that phrase, I, just, I still haven't found what it was that I set out looking for to begin with. Tonight, as we dive back into Ecclesiastes, what we will find is that Solomon is actually going to echo that same sentiment with what he has attempted up until this point in his life. What he's going to describe tonight through this chapter that we're going through, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, is this journey that he has been on to attempt to find purpose in all of the things that he attempted in order to find it. So chapter number 1, verse 12, we're going to pick up right where we left off last time. It says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Over these next several verses, Solomon is going to basically tell us everything that he has, all that he possesses, and everything that he was as an individual. All that he accomplished and everything that he was as an individual. And the reason why he does this, this is just my belief in through reading it, but my belief is the reason why he does this is because it almost reads as if he is building a defense to those who are reading it. He wants to make sure that those who are reading these words understand, listen, I truly did try everything. 
It's not that there was just this one thing that I didn't get to, and I, if you're reading it, you might see it and say, oh, you know what, that's why he couldn't find fulfillment, because he didn't go after this one thing, or he didn't accomplish this one goal. He wants it to be clear to the reader that he has attempted everything, he has possessed everything, and he has absolute validity to feel the way that he feels. And so he starts by describing himself in verse number 12, where he says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, to be a king would be prestigious in and of itself. But he was not only a king. He was not just a king of some third world country. He was the king in Jerusalem. And he wasn't just a king in Jerusalem. He was a king in Jerusalem during a time where the nation of Israel was actually united. See, if you go throughout the Old Testament, what you will find is that the nation of Israel actually on more than one occasion was split into a northern and a southern kingdom because of infighting. And there were many people who ruled over the nation at times where it was split. Solomon is not one of those people. From all accounts, he ruled over them not only when they were united, but during a time where they were thriving and when they were prosperous. So he says, I'm not just a king. I was a king of a prosperous united nation who was thriving and who was doing well. But yet this still did not satisfy him. He continues in verse 13. He says, And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. He says, I gave my heart. I really did. I dedicated my heart to seek to search, to look after everything that I could find. And all I really found, and all I really realized after all of this, is that God gave this to me as almost something that was burdensome. He uses the phrase here that it was a sore travail that God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. He's basically saying, hey, I was given this burden by God. Any attempt to find wisdom is a burden. It's just, it's not something that ultimately brings fulfillment. Guzik puts it this way. He says, God has deliberately built a system where life seems meaningless and empty without the understanding of a living, active God to whom we must give account. It may seem cruel to God to decide, devise such a system, but it's actually evidence of his great love and mercy. He says this, he built within us the desire and the need for that which brings meaning and fulfillment to life. The creator made a God-shaped space in each of us, which can only be filled with him. God knows that our deepest need is absolute oneness with him. He knows that the deepest need of the human heart is absolute oneness with God. But he also knows that more often than not, in fact, I would say rarely if ever, will pleasure in this life and will good things in this life and will riches in this life ever really point us to that need? Rarely, if ever, and I would, I would venture to say never, will they actually point us to, hey, I need a Savior. What does point us to those things is pain, and it's heartache, and it's burdens in this life. Those are the things that push us to the feet of Jesus. Rarely is it good things. Rarely is it prosperous things. And what Solomon is saying here is that ultimately what he has felt is heartache. It wasn't wrong for him to seek meaning. It wasn't wrong for him to seek purpose in this life. He just honestly didn't have to work so hard to do so. It was staring him right in the face. 
He didn't have to go through all this trouble to find purpose and meaning. It was staring him right in the face in oneness and purpose with God Almighty. Purpose is found right where you are currently, right where God has you currently. Not where you want to be, not where you think you should be, not where you think you might be, not where you think you might be a year from now. Purpose in this life is serving God faithfully in where he has your two feet planted right now. That's where purpose in this life is found. Now, does that mean you don't set goals and you don't ever change scenery and you don't ever strive for Of course not. But you will never find purpose and meaning in this life if it is always something that you're looking forward to. If it's always a date on the calendar that once I get here, once I get to this place, once I get to this day, then I will have purpose and then I'll have meaning and then I'll feel fulfilled. It will never be found until you learn to be satisfied and to seek meaning and purpose in where God has your feet right here in this moment. Unfortunately for Solomon, he failed to realize that. So he goes a little bit deeper and he elaborates on his search for meaning in verses 14 and 15. He says, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. And that which is wanting cannot be numbered. So again, he's building this defense to the reader. I mentioned this in the beginning, but in verse 14, he says, hey, I've seen all the works. Because it's possible somebody could read this and say, I bet if he saw this beautiful country, or I bet if he saw this place, he wouldn't feel that way. He says, no, listen, listen, I've seen it all. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And behold, all of it, it's vanity, it's empty, it's meaningless, and it's vexation of spirit. We'll talk about that phrase in a little bit. In verse 15, he says, that which is crooked cannot be made straight. Solomon has done a lot of thinking and a lot of pondering on life's issues. He's done a lot of thinking on what people have described as the meaning of life. See, in life, most people, whether you are a Christian or you are not, you have a way that you see the world. We believe as Christians, we look at things through a biblical worldview, and that's how we gain meaning and we gain purpose in this life. But for those who are not Christians, they typically still, even if they have a worldview that is outside of the Bible, they still have a way of looking at it that is A to B. Hey, if we do these things, it's a straight line, and if you do these things to move from A to B, it's a straight line, and you will find everything that you're looking for in this life. And what Solomon is saying here is, no, I've studied all of these things. I've studied what people believe. I've looked into this. I have seen all of these people's opinions about, hey, this, this is meaning. This is purpose. Just go in this straight line. He says, every single one of them, there's things that go crooked. In every single one of these worldviews, there's things that go sideways. And no matter how hard I try in my mind, I can't seem to iron them out. I can't seem to get them to make sense. I can't seem to get them to make a straight line where I can go from A to B and find meaning in this life. He's thought a lot about this, and he just can't seem to account for some of these things. There's a huge push in our culture today for the idea of philosophy, for the idea to study philosophy in order to find meaning in this life. And people spend decades and spend and dedicate their entire lives to trying to study philosophical ideas in order to determine the meaning and the answers to life. Here's the biggest problem with philosophy, is that somebody could spend their entire life studying this and coming up with this idea and finally getting what they think is right. And the, all you have to do is go and say, yeah, but what if you're wrong? 
And then it just all unravels. That's really all there is to it. It completely unravels, and all that hard work is just completely torn apart. See, this idea and this push to find meaning and to find purpose in this life outside of God's word is a vain endeavor. It's something that cannot be accomplished. It's something that will ultimately end in heartache. See, Solomon had both knowledge and wisdom. And there's a difference between the two. It's good to have knowledge. It's better to have wisdom. Have them both. You'll be even happier. But he had both of these. He had knowledge and he has wisdom. Here, though, he's expressing knowledge. He's expressing what he has learned, but he's not expressing wisdom. In fact, it's just the opposite. In verse 16, he says, I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and I've gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. I mentioned this when we introduced the series a few weeks ago. There are some people who debate whether or not Solomon is the author of this book. And they will point to phrases and ways that the author describes himself, like king of Jerusalem. And they will say, well, that could have been a generic term. And I'll I'll give you that. There may be other places in the book where you could say it could be this or that. This makes it abundantly clear who the author is. It's obviously Solomon because he gives it to you in about the third line. He says, have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. We know the story, but at one point in time, when he is beginning to take over in Israel, God speaks to Solomon and says, Solomon, I give you anything you want. He says, basically, here's a blank check, and you can have anything you want, anything that you ask for, I'm going to give it to you. Solomon could have asked for wealth, and he could have asked for power, and he could have asked for anything, but he asks for wisdom. Because he knew what a great task it was going to be to lead Israel. And so he asked God for wisdom to make the right decisions and to be a good leader. And that's exactly what God gives him. And so he is wise as a result of it. But he's not just wise. He's the wisest man outside of Jesus Christ to have ever lived. He had more wisdom. It's the stuff of legends. He had more wisdom than anybody else on this earth. And he says just as much here. He says, I've gotten more wisdom than anybody else. But he starts this verse by saying this, I communed with my own heart. I don't know if you all do this, and if you don't, then you'll just think I'm weirder, which is fine. Um, But maybe you do this too. You ever find yourself talking to yourself and trying to basically talk yourself through something? Maybe you have something that you're on the fence about and you kind of have to motivate yourself. Like you're just telling yourself, you got this, you got this, don't cry, you can cry later. Now you're just trying to motivate yourself to get through something. Or maybe you have a big decision to make and you're considering the fallout from that decision and so you're kind of talking things out loud. Well, it's possible that they might say this or that they might do this and if they do, this is how I'll respond. And you kind of talk these things out with yourself. If it's just me, it's fine, just nod along and know that I'm crazy. But most of us at some point in time do this exact same thing. We just talk things out with ourselves, we talk things out loud, and this is how we come to make certain decisions. Well, Solomon is saying just as much here. He says, hey, I commune with my own heart. I searched inwardly. Again, the wisest man, apart from Jesus Christ, if there was anybody who had the right to talk to himself and see what the right decision was, I understand where he comes to this point. Because, again, all the wisdom that he could have ever imagined. So he says, I'm talking these things out with myself. I'm having this conversation with myself. I'm asking myself. I communed with my own heart, and this is what I said. Lo, I'm come 
to great estate and have gotten more wisdom. So he says, I have all these things. I have great estate. I have more wisdom than all before me. But then the end of the verse, yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So we mentioned this a minute ago. Solomon had the benefit of having both wisdom and knowledge. And that's the prelude to what he says in 17. And I gave my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit. So essentially what he's saying here is this. I had the wisdom to know what was right. But I still wanted to see what would happen if I didn't do what was right. I had the wisdom to know better, but I wanted to see what it would be like if I didn't. And so he says, I gave my heart over. He says, I gave it to know madness and folly. But even that, he perceived that this is vexation of spirit. After he has this conversation with himself, after he communes with himself, he thinks, you know what, maybe I'm just out of balance. Maybe I have all this wisdom and that's how I'm making my decisions. And maybe I need to take some of the foolish things and I kind of need to balance them out. And maybe that's why I'm feeling so out of whack and I need to just balance the scales a little bit. And once I do that, then things will make a lot more sense. But this is how he describes it at the end of the verse. He says, even that, I perceive this also is vexation of spirit. Vexation is just a word that means striving. It means longing after. That word spirit at other places in the scripture is also translated as wind. So while I do believe that he's talking about his own spirit, there are some times where you could also see this as saying chasing the wind. It's this description of basically going after something that is elusive, something that cannot be captured, something that no matter how close you get to obtaining it, it always seems to get away. He says, it's a longing, it's a striving of my spirit, but I can't seem to get it. In verse 18, he says, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. According to Solomon, here's what he says. The more you know, the sadder you are. That's Solomon's description of this life. He says, hey, the more you know, the sadder you are. And it's almost as if, and I'm not saying that he is, but it's almost as if Solomon is saying that he regrets his decision to get wisdom. Because it seems like he talks about how he got wisdom and how it basically gave him all the answers that he needed, but yet he still felt unfulfilled. And so through these verses, he goes through and he basically talks about how he tried to balance the scales. And it's almost as if he's regretting this decision. I don't believe that he actually did, but I do believe it's something that he considered. And so as he mentions this all throughout this chapter, he's basically just talking about how all of these things just made him sad. Wisdom just made him sad and all the knowledge just made him sad. And here's the thing that we have to keep in mind. Wisdom and knowledge are amazing gifts from God. They truly, truly are. But if our focus is not on God through the gaining of wisdom and knowledge, all those things are going to do is open up our eyes to how broken this world truly is. See, when our focus is on God and on the God who can make beauty from the ashes of this broken world, then things begin to make a lot more sense when we consider wisdom and we get knowledge. But if we're not doing that, if we're not having a focus that is God-centered, then gaining these things really don't matter. They're just going to get us to a point where we realize how broken and sinful this world truly is. Solomon looked for purpose, but he ultimately just felt disappointed. He ultimately just felt let down. And so he decides to try something else. 
He says, you know what? I know wisdom says that there is no good that can come in the temporal things of this earth. But you know what? Wisdom has left me feeling just kind of terrible inside anyway. So why don't I try some of these things? Why don't I try some of these things that really I maybe should have tried to begin with? Wisdom was telling me not to, but I'm just going to try them and see what happens. And that's exactly how chapter 2 starts. In chapter 2, in verse 1, he says, I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. So he says, you know what, Uh, I've tried all the wisdom stuff. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to just try to have some fun. I'm going to try to just enjoy this life. I'm going to try to just do some things that sound fun, and let's see where that gets me. So it says that he said to his heart, so here he goes talking to himself again. He says, go to now, I'll prove thee with mirth. Enjoy pleasure. So he says, hey, anything that sounds fun, let's just try it. Anything that somebody would consider fun, let's just try it, and let's just see what happens. And let's see if it brings a smile, and let's see if it brings some purpose into this life. Maybe today in our modern culture, you may say something like, hey, uh, I, just, I'm, I need something to like, cheer me up, so I'm going to go buy a new outfit, or I'm going to go on a vacation, or I'm going to buy a new car, or I'm just going to buy something for the house, or I, just, I need to do something to just elevate my mood, right? I just need to try something to elevate my mood. And what he's saying here essentially is the same thing. I just need something. I'm going to try all the fun things of this world to bring me a smile. And I've said this so far, the last time I preached and tonight, and I'll say it again, None of these things are bad things in and of themselves. If you have the disposable income and you want to buy a new outfit or you want to go travel and you want to do these things just because you think it's going to make good memories and it's going to bring a smile to your face and you're going to enjoy it, that's totally fine. Just don't do them with the perception that this is going to bring the fulfillment in your life and it's going to fill some type of void that is missing. Because, see, that's the mistake that Solomon made. It wasn't just, you know what, God's blessed me with some things and I'm going to enjoy them. Now, if it's sinful, obviously, I'm not advocating for that. But he's not just enjoying good things in this life. Rather, what he's doing is he's trying all of these things, expecting them to fill a void that only God Almighty can fill. And we do the exact same thing. We do all of these things that we think are going to bring us some type of fulfillment, when in reality, all they do is they make us happy for a little while, and then they just leave us feeling empty once again. And so Solomon tries these things in verse number 1. Today, if you are trying this same thing to bring you joy, maybe it might even look something like, you know what, Uh, I'm going to buy a new car. And listen, if you want to buy a new car and you've got the income to do it, enjoy it, okay? But you know what's going to happen is you'll go buy this new car, and it's got zero miles on it. And it's got every available feature. It's got all of the new features that are available. And you drive it off the lot, and it smells awesome. And people are looking at you at the stoplight, and you're like, yeah, this is really, really cool. And it's cold, and it's got the heated steering. I mean, it's got everything. It's got everything you could have imagined. And for that time, you're happy. And it is awesome, and it's exciting. But then, about six months go by, and you're driving by the dealership, and you see the newest model. And it's got a few features that yours doesn't have. And you start thinking, man, maybe I should have waited because... That one's got these features, and that one can charge things wirelessly inside the house. I mean, it can do things that my car just can't do. And then we're looking at that new shiny car in the lot, and we're looking at ours, and it's got the brown film on it now because it's wintertime, right? And it just doesn't quite have that same excitement as when we drove it off the lot, and we're left wanting what's new. No difference here. The human experience has been the same for thousands of years. 
We get something new, we're excited about it for a little while, kind of wears off, we want something else, and then we're happy again for a little while. It's not wrong to enjoy good things in this life, but if you enjoy them expecting them to bring some sort of ultimate fulfillment and purpose, you're going to be let down over and over and over again. So Fletcher doesn't do it for Solomon. And so he says in verse 2, you know what, maybe I need a good laugh. Maybe that's what's missing in my life. So verse 2, he says, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what do with it? So he thinks, you know what, uh, maybe what's missing in my life is I just need a good laugh. After all, I read somewhere, I can't remember what it, where it was, but I read somewhere that laughter does good like a medicine. Some of you will get that later. Solomon wrote that in Proverbs. But yeah, so <laughs> he's thinking, you know what, I read somewhere that laughter does good like a medicine. So maybe I just need a good laugh. Maybe I just need to elevate my mood. And that's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. Even the Mayo Clinic points out that if you laugh regularly, it's likely to improve your immune system. And it can even work as a pain relief. It's a good thing to laugh. It's a good thing to enjoy and to laugh in this life. I would encourage you to do so. If you've been feeling a little out of it lately, just try it. Just try watching something funny. Try having a conversation with someone you know will make you laugh. And just see where it gets you. See if it can elevate your mood for a little while. But as we've said with all of this, it's not what's missing in your life. It might elevate your mood temporarily, and it's a good thing, and I'm an advocate for it. It's not going to fill what's missing in your life. It's not going to fill that ultimate void. You may see something that makes you laugh, and, I mean, you are just laughing hysterically to the point where you've got to rewind it, you've got to watch it again. And for a little while, you may have that same feeling, but then as time goes on, it just doesn't really make you laugh like it used to, and now you have to find something new. And again, the cycle repeats. This is the human condition. It's even possible to laugh and not really feel happy. I can think of times in my life, and maybe you're the same way, where we've either been going through something or we have known somebody who was going through something, and we were just hurting. We just didn't really feel in a laughing mood. But you hear something that's funny, and you kind of laugh, and it's almost like a reflex. It doesn't really come from anywhere. It's not genuine. You're not really feeling happy. You're not really feeling better. It almost feels hollow. I don't know how else to describe it. But it's almost just like a reflex that comes out. And that just goes to show you laughter is not going to cure these things. Solomon even said this in Proverbs 14. Even in laughter, the heart is sorrowful. And the end of that mirth is heaviness. He's describing somebody who is not truly righteously living. It's amazing how much of a contrast it is with some of the things he says in Proverbs and some of the things he says in Ecclesiastes. You would think these were written by two completely different people, but that's not the case. Verse 3. He says, I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. So he says, you know what? The laughter didn't do it, and the pleasures of this earth didn't do it. Maybe drinking will help. Maybe that will help. Maybe that's what's missing in my life. Maybe I'm just too uptight, and maybe I just need to loosen up, and maybe if I try this, then that's going to be what I'm missing. Man, if that's not true and so prevalent of our culture today, we are told that this is something that we have to have in order to enjoy this life. We're told that it's something that is beautiful for just these amazing moments in our life. We're told that it's something that's looked upon and revered by intellectuals. And it's so culturally acceptable and pushed that it almost makes people feel awkward if they don't engage in it. And it's no different today. It's no different today that people think this is going to be the cure to life's problems. 
But talk to people who have been on the other side of having family members or friends of the innumerable deaths that have come as a result of this, and you will find a completely different story. It's not the answer to your problems. It's only going to numb them for a little while, and they're going to come back stronger than ever. He tries this for a little while, and he enjoys it. And here's the thing. These first three verses, they are pleasurable for a little while. Scripture tells us that sin is pleasurable for a season. But it also tells us that sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And so for a little while, Solomon enjoyed these things, but ultimately, he's right back to where he started. And so he says at the end of verse 3, you know, I'll see what was good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. So he says, let me ask around. Let me talk to some people and see what's making them happy. And he does just that in verses 4 through 6. Verse 4, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. So he starts by saying, I built houses. I had structures that were built for me, but I also had houses that were built for me. And I think it's safe to assume that these were probably not modest homes. These were probably homes that had every amenity that you could imagine at the time. They were probably very lavish homes. And it wasn't just one. It was multiple that he had built for him. He continues in the verse. He says, I built me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. And I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruit. So he could walk out of these beautiful homes that were built for him. And he could see all the natural beauty of the world and these gardens and these things that were planted. And they were the best kind of gardens, the kind where other people do the gardening for you. So he would just walk out of the house, and he didn't have to do any of the upkeep. He didn't have to do any of the landscaping. He could just walk out and observe all the natural beauty of the world at that time, leaving from his home of beauty and going out into the natural beauty, just be able to observe and enjoy. He also says in verse 6, I made me pools of water, to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. Now, when we hear pools, we think in America here, swimming pools, but that's not actually what he's describing here. What it essentially was was a reservoir, and it worked as an irrigation channel so that it would water these things. That's why at the end of the verse, at the end of verse 6, he says, Therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. It was to water those things so that they would grow. This is also described in Nehemiah chapter 2. When Nehemiah goes back and he's rebuilding the city, it's the same language that is used there for what they build there for their water reservoir. So he has a self-watering garden, the original in-ground sprinkler system. He's got that. He's got other people that are working the garden for him. He has got beautiful homes, and he comes out to all of it and just says, still doesn't do it. It's still pointless. He's going to say that in just a few verses. None of it is satisfying. And we still do the same thing today. You know what? Maybe if I get a new home, that's what's going to satisfy me. That didn't do it. Maybe I need a house on the beach somewhere. Or maybe I need a cabin in the woods. Maybe I need an outdoor entertainment space. Maybe I need an indoor entertainment space. Maybe I need a swimming pool. Maybe I need all of these things. And we find ourselves constantly trying to just increase what we have, and we're left exactly where we started, which is that it's still not filling that void. As I've said, and as I'll continue to say, it's not bad to have these things. Have an outdoor barbecue space. Have a pool. Invite me over. It's great, okay? I absolutely. Go ahead and do those things. Just don't do them expecting that it's going to bring what's missing in your life and it's going to fulfill you. Take it from Solomon that that's not going to work. He's tried the alcohol. He's tried homes. He's tried the beauty of gardens. He's tried all of these things. And so he says, you know what, maybe I need other people. 
Maybe you need other people to share in this with. In verse 7, he says, I got these servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. He says, I had servants. I had people that were able to do this work for me. He also says the word maidens there. Now, likely here, that just means a woman servant. But we also know from Solomon's life that he had no shortage of relationships that he thought were going to be fulfilling. He had no shortage of wives thinking that he was going to ultimately be fulfilled by these things. And here's the thing that we have to understand. Marriage is an incredible, amazing gift from God. I'm so thankful for my wife. I don't know where I would be without her. Honestly, if something happened to her, we've been married eight years. I still can't make the coffee right. She tells me all the time. I don't know what I'm measuring wrong, but something is wrong. I would be totally, totally lost without her. But it's unfair of me to expect her to fulfill all of my deepest needs and vice versa. And a spouse cannot do that for you either. You can have amazing marriage here on this earth. You can have enriching friendships. You can have strong family relationships. And those are good things and those are blessings from God to help us through this life. It's not going to fill what's missing. It's not going to fill that deepest void in your life. It'll help us through, but it cannot replace what only God can fulfill. So in verse 8, he says, I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So then he goes on to hire private musicians. He hires singers. He uses his innumerable wealth to hire singers to essentially play him a private concert. So imagine whoever it is, your favorite individual singer or group of singers, imagine that they are just playing you a private concert in this beautiful garden that you have, in this lavish home that you have. That's what Solomon has done here. He has hired somebody to do just that. Music can be a powerful tool, and I'm so thankful. It is a gift from God to have music here on this earth. And there are songs that I listen to that I enjoy because they just calm my soul, and they help me just to think about how good God has been. There are songs that I listen to when I think about my daughters. There are songs that I listen to just because it's a nice day outside, and I'm like, it's just something about it. They just seem to go together. Music is an amazing thing. It is a blessing from God. It's not what's missing in your life. Sometimes you'll see, they'll put something on TV like a concert or a sporting event, and you'll see all these tens of thousands of people singing in unison. And it's this really cool thing that you'll see from time to time where everybody together is singing in unison. And in that moment, nobody is thinking about the problems that they have. Nobody is thinking about anything that's going on in their life. They are just so absorbed in that moment. But the thing is, eventually the song ends. It might be a minute, it might be a couple of minutes, but eventually the song ends. And you still have to face the problems that you came with. You still have to face the issues that you came with. For Solomon, the music may have been a good distraction for a little while, but he's still left to face the music, and he recognizes it's not what's missing. And so in the last three verses, verses 9 through 11, that we'll look at tonight, he basically summarizes everything he just said. In verse number 9, He says, so I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun. What a sad, sad statement to make. 
Can you imagine working your entire life, having goals set for yourself, achieving every one of those goals, and accomplishing everything you wanted in this life, only to stand there and look at it all and say, it was worthless. There was no reason for me to do any of it. That's where Solomon's at at this point. He's literally staring at everything that he has, and he says, it just isn't doing anything for me. It's not satisfying my deepest need. And it's not about what you have. It's not about the stuff that you have. You can have nice things. It's not a sin to have nice things. And it's not some extra blessing from God to not have things. That somehow you're more Christ-like because you don't have anything nice. The key is the perspective on what you have. The key is your perspective and your attitude about the things that you have. If your attitude and your perspective is that these things are going to be what's missing in my life, you'll always feel unfulfilled. But if you can look at things as just, hey, these are a blessing from God. I want to steward them well. I want to use them to enjoy this life, but ultimately to give glory to him. Then that keeps things in a proper perspective. And it allows you to give him the honor and glory that he so greatly deserves. You can gain everything that this world has to offer. But you will still find yourself saying exactly what Solomon is saying here. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And tonight, as we close out this portion of Ecclesiastes, I want to just ask this question as we begin to land the plane here. For you personally, what will it take for you to feel content? What is it going to take for you in this life to feel content? Is it one more dollar? Is it one more raise, one more house, one more relationship, one more fill-in-the-blank? What is it that it's going to take for you to feel content in this life? As the musicians come and lead us in a song of invitation, we so often think, as I mentioned at the beginning, that when we get to somewhere on the calendar or we get to some place down the road, that that is going to be when we feel contentment. But contentment happens when our attitude to God is, God, right where you have me right now, I want to serve you faithfully. There's nothing in this world that can satisfy me. Everything that I have is in you. God, you are what I'm looking for, and I desire to serve you faithfully right where I'm at. Thank you for joining us today on the First Baptist Church of Hazel Park audio podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about First Baptist Church, visit us online at fbchazelpark.com.